Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, we are back after our two-week break. I hope you've missed us. Oh, of course they've missed us. <laughs> um, but we did, of course give you our little treat in the middle because where we didn't have an episode to release so you guys have had the lee alice interview so um we've had some amazing feedback around that interview haven't we mark it's been really really well received um and it sounds like everybody really enjoyed listening to him and him talking about such a a brave subject to discuss so openly yeah thank you to everybody who uh got in touch following that it's um it was it was the first time we've ever done anything like that, actually. And I remember we were both quite nervous about it, weren't we? Yeah, definitely. But I, I think we just wanted Lee to be able to tell his his story and his version of events um, as as well as he could. So, um, sound issues aside, I think it I think it was a really good episode, a really good interview. And um, Lee is an absolute top bloke uh, for doing that. We're so grateful for t- for him for uh, taking part. Definitely. We were really grateful and we're really glad that everybody's really enjoyed listening to the episode as well. Yeah, and also thank you to everybody who has been in touch having bought merch. Oh my God, I've enjoyed it so much. I know, it's freaking me out. There's so many people walking around with a t-shirt emblazoned with fuck off Mark on it in probably all different <laughs> countries in the world. It's quite a weird thought, but um, that has definitely been the most popular t-shirt um so yeah thank you to everybody who has supported us and bought their merchandise if you would like to have a look at what's on offer then you can head over to our facebook group and you'll be able to see pictures of all of the different merch and a price list as well as well as details of how to order said merchandise and i don't think mark will be upset with me telling you all this but even his mum has bought a fuck off mark t-shirt which i loved yeah a bit rude isn't it mm. um so yeah if you do buy any merch as well make sure you take a selfie and you send it to us because then we can put together a little bit of a gallery of all of you guys wearing your merchandise yeah definitely we'd also like to say a huge thank you to our newest patreon supporters so these guys have signed up to support us on patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast is that right mark yes yes well we have loads of tears and loads of exclusive stuff for people who are able to support us financially which is really really major um and there's a bit of a list of you this week because where we had our week off so a huge thank you to chloe green linda davidson emma stephen emma poppleton mia martinson ray lewis judith richardson christina elizabeth loitzu Amy Charlton, Ever Present, James Finnis, Friend of the Show Andy Ogden, and Sharon. Do you think I've said that right? I think you did, yeah, Sharon. That's you. a beautiful name, isn't it? It's so gorgeous. So thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, and as Bethan said, if you would like to join these guys and uh, several other people over at Patreon, uh, then head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It just takes two minutes to sign up to support the show and you can support us from as little as £1.95, uh, which is about $3, I think. So uh, where, wherever you are in the world, uh, do have a look at it. There's loads of exclusive content, as Bethan said. Also, a huge congratulations go to Lucy this week who won our competition on Instagram. I hope you are enjoying your copy of the Richard Osman record-breaking number one bestseller, The Thursday Murder Club, and your delicious Tony's Chocolonely chocolate. I was so waiting to see how you said that because I've never said it out loud. Chocolonely. I know it's weird, isn't it? Nice chocolate, though. That was so lovely of you, Mark, to do that competition because that was just off your own back and that was very, very sweet of you. So pat on the back for you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to do something really nice and I'd had a rubbish week, actually, and ordered those goodies for myself from Amazon and they arrived and I, I opened the parcel and I was like, oh, my God, just seeing them, I feel so much better. And I thought I need to do that for somebody else. So, um, so yeah, Lucy uh, got in touch and sent a lovely photo um, of the goodies. So um, I hope you're enjoying them. I'm sure you will be. We've really enjoyed chatting with everybody that's entered our competitions recently. So a quick shout out as well to Janice and also to Charlene, who won some competitions um, week before last, something like that on Instagram and Facebook. So thank you, everybody who joins in and gets in touch. And hopefully we'll have some more little ad hoc competitions coming up in the future 
Yeah, so we generally promote them through our social media. So if you don't follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, uh, make sure you do. Uh, We've got about two and a half thousand of you on Instagram now and 1500 in the Facebook group. So there's loads, loads of our listeners uh, are over there. So why don't you go and join them too? Um, I also wanted to just thank, I'm sorry, there's loads of thank yous and loads of messages. Uh, you can. But it's like an acceptance speech at the Oscars, isn't it? It is. But I um, I just really wanted to thank Sabina Carr, who got in touch. Uh, she sent a message a couple of days ago. Um, so Sabina's one of our longtime listeners and Patreon supporters. And she just reminded me of the uh, barbecue story that I told in an episode uh, over a year ago and it just made me laugh I was just laughing again and it was the story where I was going to go to Bethan's barbecue and it just got out of control and I was then going to like grab your friend's hand and like I said what would you do Bethan if I just like marched her over to the barbecue and grabbed her hand and put it on the grill and it went like and it was just weird wasn't it one of those weird uh moments but we were laughing. it was one of those days where you were just having a bit of a day weren't you yeah but it just made me laugh obviously I would never have done it I'm not advocating violence to anyone not least women but it was just one of those very weird uh intrusive thoughts I think wasn't it that I, uh, mm. that I had anyway um so uh without any further ado we, we'll um we'll get on to today's case and it's a case that sees us head to Canada I believe, for the first ever time. And um, a few of you, uh, Matt included, have been in touch asking for a case from Canada. And I'm really grateful for all of the suggestions that I've had. Um, Lots of detail around them. I'm so grateful. And we will cover uh, some of those in the future. But first of all, I did want to cover this particular case. Um, So it's the case of Jennifer Pan. On the cold night of November the 8th in 2010, in the suburban town of Markham in Ontario, Canada, 25-year-old Jennifer Pan was in her bedroom watching TV when she was suddenly alarmed by loud voices that she didn't recognise coming from downstairs. At first, Jennifer wondered if it was her younger brother Felix returning home unexpectedly from university, but she quickly realised that that wasn't the case, as the angry voices sounded nothing like him or anyone else she knew for that matter. Through the commotion, which seemed to be coming from the hallway at the bottom of the stairs, Jennifer could make out the frantic-sounding voice of her mother, Bikar, calling out desperately for her husband, Han, Jennifer's father. Within a few moments, Jennifer heard her father enter the fray and he began yelling at whoever had entered the house. Like Bikar, Han sounded frantic and panicked. Jennifer's blood ran cold as she realised that her home was being invaded by several unknown men. This is absolutely terrifying. It really would be, wouldn't it? And I'll go on to say in a second, but she was just sat frozen in fear. So as I said, yeah, she sat at the edge of a bed frozen with fear and she hears one intruder shout in a loud, booming voice, Where is the fucking money? Driven by fear for her parents' welfare, Jennifer mustered the courage to open her bedroom door. As she painstakingly crept out onto the landing to peer at the scene below, she was horrified to see her parents cowering on their knees before three masked men, all of whom had guns. As Jennifer struggled to comprehend this distressing situation, she was almost immediately spotted by one of the intruders a tall man with long dreadlocks who rushed up to her. He then forced her at gunpoint back into her bedroom and tied her hands tightly behind her back using string. The man with dreadlocks then demanded money from her and she gave him the location of about $2,000 worth of savings that she had stashed away in her room. Satisfied with his little haul, the man marched Jennifer down to the bottom of the stairs and forced her to her knees alongside her terrified parents who were still loudly crying and pleading with the men to take whatever they wanted and leave peacefully. As the intruders made their way through the rest of the house, they pointed their guns at the terrified family and demanded to be given more money. Jennifer gave them the location of more cash that was stashed about the house, but the meagre amount they found did little to satisfy the intruders. This is so harsh though, because I'm just thinking to myself how little cash I would have in a house. Like, I just don't have cash in my house and I wouldn't be able to give them anything. Yeah, and I think the less money that you've got, the more panicked you're going to be because you're not going to be able to give these intruders enough 
to satisfy them. So are they going to take out their frustrations on you physically? At one point, one of the men lost his temper and pistol-whipped Han across the head, causing a deep and bloody wound. This made Bikar become even more hysterical, which only served to make the robbers more anxious. Eventually, Jennifer was marched back to the top of the stairs and tied to the banister. Her terrified parents were then both taken into the basement. As he was led away, Han was heard pleading with the men not to harm his daughter. As Jennifer cowered at the top of the stairs, she heard two loud gunshots ring out, followed by loud screams and then a further three shots. And then silence. The intruders left the house in a hurry and disappeared into the cold darkness outside. Despite being tied up, Jennifer was able to manoeuvre herself just enough to reach for her mobile which was in the pocket of her pyjama bottoms. She then made a frantic phone call to 911 and pleaded for help. This harrowing call to emergency dispatchers has since been made public and can be listened to in full on YouTube. When the police arrived, they found Han covered in blood and semi-collapsed on the front lawn of his neighbour's house. He had been shot once in the face and once in the shoulder. However, despite being critically wounded, he was still alive, although barely conscious. Despite being in a shocked and disorientated state, he had managed to escape from the house shortly after the intruders had fled and was able to tell the officers that the family had been attacked, that his wife was injured in the basement and that his daughter was still in the house somewhere. The police entered the house and rescued Jennifer. Then they made their way down to the basement where they made a grim discovery. Oh my God, the... the like what these these police officers are even thinking when they're going through the house and god what an awful awful job to have to do and i mean fair play to jennifer for remembering that she had her phone in in that sort of panicked state and being able to make a phone call absolutely yeah and maneuvering herself so that she could she could grasp it and and make that important call i don't think that i could possibly listen to that though online god you might be able to after you've heard the whole episode (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, So before we hear about that grim discovery, let's hear from today's show sponsor. So we were just about to hear about that grim discovery in the basement of the Pan household. When officers made their way down the steps, they discovered Bikar, that's Jennifer's mum, slumped on the floor in a pool of blood with a blanket thrown over her head. She'd been shot three times, in her neck, shoulder, and head. By the looks of things, she had been killed instantly. The police who attended the scene were convinced that they were dealing with a home invasion that had gone horribly and tragically wrong. However, when detectives began examining the crime scene more closely, they soon became suspicious that they were dealing with something more than just a random robbery gone wrong, and almost from the very start the leading theory was that the family had been targeted. The only question was why. Detectives walked the pan house room by room, floor by floor, trying to get inside the minds of the intruders and figure out why they had singled out this house and attempted to brutally murder its occupants. However, investigators were already becoming increasingly puzzled by what they were dealing with and they were coming up with more questions and answers. Things were just not adding up. For instance, detectives had originally theorised that either Han or Bicker may have been followed home after the assailants had spotted them driving one of their brand new cars. However, the keys to Han's brand new Lexus were in plain view by the front door. If it were indeed a home invasion, why did the intruders not take the car? God, that's really major, isn't it? Because that's so obvious. Uh, absolutely yeah i mean that is a brand new car they could have used it just as a getaway car or for um facilitating further robberies that they might have carried out so yeah it's crazy that they um they didn't didn't take that car also why hadn't the intruders had to force their way into the house there was no sign of a forced entry why were they so woefully under-equipped for a home invasion? They didn't have a crowbar to get in or a backpack to carry the loot or even zip ties to restrain the residents. They had nothing except guns. And most importantly, why would they execute two witnesses but leave one completely unharmed? 
Detectives were also keen to find out why the Pan family had been targeted. They were unable to question Han, he was so critically injured that he'd been put into an induced coma in hospital and was awaiting life-saving surgery. Nevertheless, for all intents and purposes, Han and his family were just an average, unassuming middle-class family of hard-working Asian immigrants, none of whom had any previous convictions or any such links to organised crime. Convinced that something was being overlooked and determined to get to the bottom of this mystery, detectives began to examine the Pan family more closely by questioning their friends, relatives, work colleagues, classmates and anyone else who had any kind of association with the family. Before long, investigators uncovered some shocking details and the story of the Pan family began to take a dark and disturbing turn. Wow, this is so gripping already. I'm just literally sat here really like enjoying your storytelling of this this is crazy it is a gripping case actually isn't it i think it's one that a lot of people might know the name they they might be quite familiar with the case they might not be um but if you're not yeah i think it's um it's fascinating this is yeah it's not a case that i've heard of so i'm i'm looking forward to hearing more about this Huey han pan Jennifer's father and Bikar's husband was a Vietnamese-born immigrant who had moved to Canada as a political refugee in 1979. Not long after this, whilst living and working in Toronto, Han met and married another Vietnamese immigrant, Bikar. When work became scarce for the newlyweds in Toronto, they relocated and moved to Scarborough, a big city in the state of Ontario. There, the Pan successfully found stable, well-paid jobs at a major car parts manufacturer. Han was employed as a tool and die maker, while Bicar made car parts on the main production line. As they settled into Canadian life, they went on to have two children together. Their firstborn daughter, Jennifer, was born in 1986. Two years later, in 1988, Bicar gave birth to a son, Felix. Despite being reasonably happy and earning a good living in Canada, the Pans made a point of maintaining their very traditional Vietnamese cultures and values within the family home. They were conservative, strict, fiercely protective and extremely results-driven, especially when it came to the children. Han and Bikar had a strong work ethic and they laboured unbelievably hard for their money. They were determined to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities that they themselves had missed out on. I always really appreciate and and think it's amazing when parents are like that because they didn't have that upbringing. So they're like, right, we're going to work really hard to provide for our children. I think that's really admirable. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I think I think that's what drives them, though, isn't it? It's having a deprived upbringing yeah. and and not wanting history to repeat itself. But so often, um, history is repeated. So for for anybody that's able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, like the Pans, move to a different continent, a different culture, still maintain their own values from from that culture, but integrate into Canadian life, earn a good living, and do well for themselves and encourage their children. Um, is amazing but as we will see with this case they, they perhaps did take it a bit too far. So being frugal and thrifty with their earnings eventually paid off enabling the Pans to purchase a large house of their own. The house was perfect for the family, a spacious charming property with a two-car garage on a residential street in Markham, a city in the greater Toronto area with a large Asian community. Bicar drove a brand new Lexus, as we said earlier, and hand drove a Mercedes-Benz C-Class. They'd also managed to accumulate more than $200,000 in savings over the years. The Pan family were, by all accounts, a modern-day Asian-Canadian success story. However, not wanting to rest on their laurels, Han and Bicar shifted their intense drive and ambition onto their children, especially their eldest child, Jennifer. Han and Bikar pretty much decided between themselves what their children's future would look like and they set a number of extremely steep goals for both of them and had extremely high, perhaps borderline impossible, expectations. Aged just four, Jennifer was forced to take piano lessons as well as figure skating classes where she trained most days during the week. Demanding nothing less than absolute success, Han and Bikar had high hopes of her becoming an Olympic figure skating champion 
and they pushed the young child to train to the very limits of her capability. However, this backfired horribly when the exhausted child fell on the ice and sustained a badly torn ligament to her knee. It was a nasty injury that pretty much called early doors on her figure skating career. It was a bitter blow for Han and Bikar. Jennifer went on to attend a strict Catholic secondary school where she played the flute in the school band. Many of her school friends and accomplices would later tell the media how they had perceived the Pan family. According to her high school friend Karen, Jennifer's father Han was considered as the classic tiger dad and Bikar was his reluctant accomplice. Now, tiger parenting is the term given to an ultra-strict, demanding parenting style. Tiger parents push and pressure their children to attain impossibly high levels of academic achievement or success in high-status extracurricular activities. Tiger parents often resort to using authoritarian, often cruel and even abusive parenting methods. So that that was something I'd never heard of before, tiger parenting. But I think we've all seen in our lives at some point a parent that could be considered to be a tiger parent, perhaps. Yeah, I've never heard of that, but you definitely know of of somebody. That's really, really crazy. And there I was saying I kind of um, thought that was quite admirable to really put you know, all of your effort into doing something better for your children. But if you're then going to push your children to levels that are just not fair for a child whatsoever, that's that's really not great at all. No, I think it is cruel. I really do. So Han was understood to be the patriarchal force who ruled over the family with an iron fist, whilst Bikar was said to be more sympathetic and tender towards her children, albeit only when Han was not there to see it. The Pans picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and they monitored her extracurricular activities meticulously. They made it unmistakably clear to Jennifer that any interaction with boys was absolutely off limits and any kind of dating was strictly forbidden. As such, Jennifer was never permitted to socialise outside of school hours or to attend high school dances or proms or any kind of event like that. Han and Bikar feared that these activities would distract her from her academic commitments. This extreme parental oppression over Jennifer would remain in place throughout her entire childhood and extend itself just as strongly as ever into her young adult years. And by the time Jennifer was 22 years old, she remained a naive virgin who had never so much as gone to a nightclub been drunk or had a boyfriend, let alone visited a friend's house or gone on vacation without her family. Which is sad, isn't it? Wow, that is, that's really crazy by 22. Yeah. And I'm not saying that all of those things individually, but I think the whole lot to to have not experienced any of those things by 22, that, that just seems, you know, even just visiting a friend's house, like that's really, really crazy to me. Yeah, and just all the normal things that you do as a teenager, so drinking, going clubbing, um, going out fucking people, all that kind of stuff, she didn't get to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know, anyway, um, so Jennifer was becoming a mature young woman who yearned for the adventures and experiences that her friends enjoyed. She literally begged her parents to ease off on her. But despite her desperate pleas for just a little bit of freedom, her parents remained as staunch as ever. Jennifer grew understandably more and more frustrated and resentful of her parents, and she often vented her misery to her closest friends. It was later reported that her school friends regarded her upbringing as cruel, restrictive and severely oppressive. It's not known whether Han or Bikar knew how their behaviour was affecting Jennifer's overall happiness and mental well-being, If they did, they certainly didn't seem to mind too much. As far as they were concerned, their dictator-like approach to parenting was paying off. Jennifer was excelling at school, she was smashing her tests, she'd been offered an early admission scholarship at Ryerson University, and she was on a short fire path to extraordinary things. Except they were wrong. Jennifer wasn't. Despite her parents' high expectations, and even though Jennifer had received excellent grades in lower school, Her high school grades were somewhat average. Most of her grades landed in the 70% range and she only really excelled in subjects related to music. 
Han and Bicar had no idea about this, because Jennifer had forged multiple report cards using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight A grades, when in reality, she hadn't at all. God, and that's the thing, like, if they'd have not been so much pressure on her and putting so much on her, she may well have then been able to say, actually, this is what I really enjoy, and music could have been something she went on and did really well, but instead... They've all, I don't know, they're almost like forcing her to be underhand. Not that they are really forcing her, really. She's made that decision. But yeah, that's horrible. No, I think I think they are forcing her. I think she was, she felt backed into a corner under so much pressure. It became intolerable. And the only way out of it for her uh, was to, to lie and falsify mm. her grades. But I thought exactly the same about the music. She excelled in music. And had they encouraged her to... Uh, work on that on something that she actually cared about and loved then she could have gone on to become a world-class musician but they Mm -hmm. they wanted her to excel in in every field and that that was the issue and that's just there's so much more to life than just exam grades and whilst it's great if you are able to do well in exams there's going to be people who don't do well in exams or, or that sort of learning who then could do well in another field so yeah they could have done so much more that instead of just focusing on a grades on everything yeah i think i think the older you get as well the the more you realize that exams and grades are just really not important um and and not necessarily the one thing that's going to make you have that amazing career there, there's so many other factors that influence that most definitely exactly. but i think i think at that time uh, when you're a teenager, as Jennifer would have been when she was she was taking those exams, and her parents' understanding of it was that 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 was the be all and end all, I guess. So when Jennifer failed calculus class in her senior year of high school, Ryerson University rescinded her early admission, and this was a major blow for Jennifer. But she could not bear the shame of being perceived as a failure, so she began to lie to those she knew, including her parents, and she simply pretended that she was attending university as expected. Instead, she sat in cafes, taught as a piano teacher, and worked in a restaurant to earn money. To further maintain the charade, Jennifer told her parents she had won a scholarship, later falsely claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology programme at the University of Toronto. And she even went to the extent of purchasing second-hand textbooks and watching videos related to pharmacology to create notebooks full of supposed class notes that she would then show to her parents. And that that made me actually really sad that she had gone to that extent of transcribing probably hundreds of pages of notes of really complex, boring pharmacology crap so that she could show her dad and keep up the charade. That was a level of pressure that she was under. I also kind of think she may as well have just done the classes. Christ. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, she probably um, probably would have passed. Jennifer eventually told her parents that the daily commute between home and university was tiring her out and she requested permission to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week, to which Han and Bicar begrudgingly agreed to. Unsurprisingly at this point, and unbeknownst to her parents, the friend she was supposedly staying with was in fact her very first boyfriend, a man called Daniel Chi Kwong Wong, a fellow Asian immigrant who Jennifer had met in high school. Daniel was probably the exact kind of boy that Han and Bikar had been obsessively protecting Jennifer from. He was an underperformer at school and achieved low grades. He worked part-time at a pizza restaurant and was also known to deal weed on the side. And at one point he'd been arrested and charged with trafficking marijuana after half a pound of it was found on him. And the thing is, is if they'd let her date in, you know, in their eyes, the right kind of boys... Maybe she wouldn't have then been drawn to someone like this that they wouldn't have approved of. Exactly. It's it's mm-hmm. no coincidence that she has gone for the rebel kind of guy, the bad boy. Um, you're absolutely right. Had she been able to attend proms and um, have boyfriends, she would have eventually probably settled on a pretty decent normal guy like most people would. So despite Daniel's poor reputation, Jennifer was infatuated with him uh, for quite a significant period of time. 
However, Daniel was not so keen on her. Constantly frustrated at the clandestine and secretive nature of their relationship, Daniel soon became bored and began seeing other women, eventually dumping Jennifer for good. Jennifer took her first ever rejection very badly, and her reaction was as odd as it was disturbing. She called Daniel in an apparent hysterical state and told him that a stranger had entered her house by showing her what appeared to be a police badge. She then told him that several men had rushed in and gang-raped her. She also claimed that a bullet had been mailed to her and even tried to convince Daniel that his new girlfriend had orchestrated the attack. Oh my god, what the hell? I know, what a fucked up story to tell. That is so extreme. I think in the hope of winning Daniel back and, and obviously destroying the relationship that he'd gone on to have with that new girl. So, of course, this story was later proven beyond any doubt to be false, but it didn't really matter anyway. Daniel wasn't convinced at all by Jennifer's obvious lies, and for a time, he ignored her completely. The problem I'm having here now, Mark, is she seems like she's lying about a lot of stuff, and I'm starting to worry about Jennifer. I think I think a few of uh, a few of you may have uh, suspicions right now. So yeah, uh, we're, we're not far. We're getting there. We're getting there. Oh, I don't like it. I know. Um, to make matters worse for Jennifer, her ever-growing web of deceit was starting to fall apart. She was a very enthusiastic liar. The only problem was she wasn't very good at it. Han and Bikar were beginning to spot inconsistencies in her stories and their suspicions were growing rapidly, and before long, Jennifer's double life would collapse hard. Han made some investigative phone calls, and discovered that Jennifer had been lying to them about pretty much every area of her life for months. They also found out about Daniel Wong, and that Jennifer had been staying with him all along. Bikar wept. But Han was seething with rage. He ordered Jennifer to get out of his house and to never come back. But Bikar intervened and begged Han to let their daughter stay. Han agreed, but consequently he further intensified his oppressive parenting regime over her. He took away a phone and laptop for weeks, after which she would only be permitted to use them in a parent's presence, and she had to endure surprise checks on her messages. She was strictly forbidden from seeing Daniel ever again and they ordered her to quit all of her jobs except for teaching the piano and they also began tracking the odometer on her car. I mean, that is just so controlling, isn't it? I keep on thinking to myself, she's 22, 23 at this point. What the hell? She is an adult. Yeah, she's in her mid-twenties by now. crazy. Jennifer confided in her closest friends that her hatred for her parents was now more intense than ever. And it was around this time, at the peak of her despair, that she allegedly got in touch with a young man named Andrew, a high school friend who had apparently boasted about robbing people at knife point. Andrew then introduced Jennifer to another boy named Ricardo Duncan. Later, when detectives spoke to Ricardo, he told them that Jennifer had offered him $1,500 to kill her father in the car park at his workplace and to make it look like a robbery. And just like that, Jennifer Pan was suspected by the police of matricide, the killing of one's own mother. Oh my god, Mark, this is absolutely mental. We knew we were leading up to that, didn't we? (gasps) Oh, I had my suspicions, but I couldn't quite believe it. The night after the murders occurred, detectives had interviewed Jennifer and taken a statement. In it, she told them the exact same story as you heard at the beginning of this episode that the men had entered the house looking for money, tied her to the banister and taken her parents to the basement before shooting them. Two days later, the police brought her in again to give a second statement. This time, the detectives were interested to know how exactly Jennifer had been able to call for the police when she was tied to a banister. At their request, she demonstrated how she'd contorted a body to get a phone out of a waistband to place a call while she was still tied to the banister. But she didn't do a very good job of demonstrating this to them. And this massively reminded me of Joanne Lees in the Peter Falconio Mm -hmm. uh, presumed murder, where she had her hands tied behind her back and had managed to contort herself so that they were in front of her. And there's so much suspicion around that, isn't there? Yeah, it's it's really interesting interesting and i can't believe at the beginning of this i was saying how amazing it was that she did all this Ugh, you tricked me shame with this on one you. mark i'm shame. so shame I'm so on glad you. i didn't know this case until you told me it because 
that's really been a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, just on the Joanne Lee's note, actually, randomly, um, our listeners might be interested to know this, but um, obviously we covered that case. I think it was in season one. We did a two-part or maybe season two. I don't know. And um, there's there's been a lot around it, hasn't there? There was a Channel 4 documentary. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of chatter online, a lot of suspicion growing about Joanne Lee's. And we talked a bit about it in our um, retrospective Patreon special. We talked about our own theories and and how my views had changed since that episode went out. And um, I was just looking, I was doing a bit of kind of sad research online on Company's House, and I found Joanne Lees on Company's House, and she'd set up a limited company um, to manage the revenue from her book, because she obviously got a publishing deal and wrote a book. And I looked at that book, and I looked at the money that she made from that book. It was like 700 grand that she'd made from that book. Can you believe that? Absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's just crazy. Either you think, you know what, she's come through something really mad and she's at least managed to get something out of the traumatic experience or you think, wow, she's pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes. It's it's a really difficult one to to judge, isn't it? It is, and I think you're absolutely right. If if she's completely innocent, then I applaud her for actually making some money out of what was a horrifically traumatising event so that she could at least set herself up and uh, not have to worry about working all the time and stuff like that. So I applaud it if that's the case, but if, if that's not the case, that's quite shocking, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, so um, so as I was saying, Jennifer did try and demonstrate to the police how she had contorted herself so that she could reach for her phone, but she didn't really do a very good job of that. And nobody was convinced in any way by Jennifer's story now, and they began to discreetly monitor her movements. A few days later, on November the 12th, Han woke up from his three-day induced coma. He had suffered a badly broken bone near his eye, he had bullet fragments lodged in his face that doctors just couldn't get out, and he also had a shattered neck bone, and the bullet had narrowly missed a major artery, so had it hit the artery he would have absolutely died, so he was kind of meant to die, uh, but he didn't die. But despite these awful injuries, he did remember everything, including two very troubling details. Han clearly remembered seeing his daughter chatting like a friend with one of the intruders and that her arms were not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house or indeed at any point throughout the ordeal for that matter. The police brought Jennifer in for a third interview with the lead detective. This time they were done playing games with her. Laying it all out on the table, the detectives confronted Jennifer with the fact that they knew full well that she was involved in this crime. They knew all about her upbringing, her lies, her secret hatred for her parents, everything. And Jennifer broke. Hunched over and sobbing, she asked repeatedly, but what happens to me? And this is probably the most interesting aspect of the Jennifer Pan investigation because all of the interviews and interrogations were filmed and later released on YouTube. Um, And there's a very uh, victim uh, status that that she sort of revels in, even though uh, she's she's basically admitted that that she was involved. So you can go to YouTube and you can view literally hours and hours of unedited raw footage of the entire police investigation. It is really really interesting to see that. So over the intense hours that followed during the investigation, the interviews, Jennifer did from time to time try and lie her way out of trouble, so to diminish her involvement in the case. She spun one bizarre and conflicting explanation after another. I was going to say, she's a bad liar anyway, so then you're trying to lie to some detectives, you're going to screw up somewhere, love. Exactly, and she kind of said, yeah, I'm involved, but it was, uh, I mean, a really bizarre story that she she um, portrayed to them. So according to her, she claimed the attack had been an elaborate plan to kill herself, and it had gone tragically wrong. Unable to cope with her situation any longer, Jennifer told the detectives that she had given up on life, but lacked the courage to kill herself, so she'd hired a local hitman named Homeboy, whose real name she claimed not to know, and she claimed that she'd hired him to do it for her. Not long after ordering her own suicide, however, her relationship with Han, her father, had suddenly improved and she decided to call off the hit. However, Homeboy and his associates had decided to proceed anyway, and the men ended up killing her mother instead of her. 
As mentioned earlier, Jennifer was a talented young woman, but she was not a very gifted liar. Unconvinced by this bullshit story, the police arrested Jennifer on the spot. After further questioning, detectives determined that Jennifer and Daniel had gotten back together and had then come up with a plan to end Han and Bikar's oppression once and for all by hiring a professional assassin to kill them both for $10,000. Jennifer cemented Daniel's loyalty to the plan by telling him that after the sale of the family's assets, she was set to inherit around half a million dollars, which they could then use to run away and get their own place somewhere else. Yeah, and as if that was going to be shared with him. I, 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 do, I don't know, because she, she was obsessed with him. I think she... Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I think she kind of saw that as her way of, of getting him back properly. But knowing Daniel, he would have just screwed her over for that money and fucked off. Wow, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, in her warped mind, it was all, all going to work. I find it weird that a small-time weed dealer would go for a a kind of crime like this as well like that's yeah. really interesting that he would be on board but then she must have been really convincing yeah and he i think it was probably just a case that he knew people that were a bit dodgier than he was and maybe they knew even more dodgy people and before you know it you've made your way up the ladder to a hitman for hire daniel connected jennifer with a man named lenford crawford a jamaican-born immigrant and career criminal who was also known on the streets as homeboy and Daniel also gave Jennifer a SIM card and an iPhone so that she could contact Homeboy without having to use her personal phone. After some back and forth negotiations between the two, Homeboy contacted two other local gangsters named Eric Carty and David Milvagnam. <laughs> <laughs> named oh. Eric and David. Eric and David. It took about five takes to get there. Jesus, I don't um, know how you'd say that. Milvagnam? Milvagnam. I can do it now. Say that. Uh, I'm just going to carry on. And the three of them formed the hit squad for the planned attack on the Pan Home. On the night of the attack, it was just Han, Bikar and Jennifer in the house, uh, as Jennifer's younger brother Felix was away at university. Before retiring for the night, Jennifer had simply crept downstairs and quietly unlocked the front door, allowing her mother's killer to simply walk in as if it were one of their own homes. Deeper analysis of Jennifer's cell phone calls and texts further corroborated this theory and in the spring of 2011, police successfully tracked down and arrested Daniel Wong, David, Eric and Lenford, homeboy Crawford and charged all five of them with first degree murder, attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Obviously Jennifer was charged as well. So the trial of Jennifer and her four accomplices began on March the 19th in 2014 and it lasted for just over 10 months, which is a a massively long trial, isn't it? That is crazy. There must have been a lot of evidence to go through. I, though, I guess, though, there are five of them, so... That's true. It's not like it's one person's trial, but yeah, that is a long time. Yeah, I hope my um, trial doesn't doesn't last 10 months. Um, All five defendants pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And I would like to just point out quickly now on Mark's behalf, he doesn't mean his trial for murder. He means he's going to be on jury duty. But I just realised that probably sounds like you're a criminal. Yeah, I'm not actually going to be on trial. Um, No. So... At the trial, the police presented compelling evidence which included extensive tracking of Jennifer's mobile phone activity. And this included over a 100 text messages sent between Jennifer and Daniel in the hours leading up to the murders. Further evidence dissected the significant irregularities in Jennifer's testimony, her obsession with Daniel, her obvious hatred for her parents, her distinct lack of true emotion and her earlier confession to detectives regarding the attack. The most compelling irregularity was that Jennifer was not assaulted, blindfolded, taken to the basement or shot. And police further discredited her defence by asking the jury to consider why on earth the killers would execute Han and Bikar after the robbery but knowingly leave behind a single eyewitness. So obviously Han wasn't executed but as far as the robbers were concerned they had killed him and Bikar. Um, so why would you have left Jennifer? Why, why did she not even get assaulted? Whilst they wouldn't have thought that Han would survive, you'd at least dress it up a little bit and hit her a couple of times or tie her hands up or something um the fact that he then survived and was able to say actually she wasn't tied up at all is just ridiculous yeah 
They should have at least pistol whipped her or something. And then at least she'd have had some wounds for when the police came as well. Like, it does seem very, very strange that you wouldn't even try and pretend you'd been injured. Yeah, or, or, or at the very least, she should have had a good bitch slap in. Anyway. Well, um, she should anyway. Cause she should anyway, what she yeah. she did. We can <laughs> be the ones to give her said bitch slapping. Anyway, evidence from Han further undermined Jennifer's credibility, as did her inability to recreate the conditions of that 911 call when her hands were bound behind her. And over 200 pieces of evidence were presented to the jury in the case against Jennifer, and over 50 people testified against her at the trial. So, yeah, I think you're right, Beth, and it is no wonder that this lasted 10 months. There was so much evidence, so many people giving um, evidence, and, and five people on trial. On December the 13th in 2014, Jennifer, Daniel, David, Eric and Homeboy were all found guilty and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for at least 25 years. Han and Jennifer's brother Felix also requested a court order that forever banned Jennifer from contacting members of the surviving family. Despite strong objections of her lawyers, the judge filed the order and Jennifer is also permanently barred from contacting Daniel Wong. Bick Harpan's funeral was held on November the 15th in 2010 and sadly Han couldn't attend because of his injuries. So the Jennifer Pan case has been the subject of a lot of debate with a very clear split in opinion surrounding Jennifer's motives for arranging the deadly attack. Some suggest that Han and Bikar's parenting style was much closer to child abuse than to actual parenting and that it is no surprise that Jennifer would eventually decide she'd had enough. Much like citizens of an oppressed state who violently revolt against their dictator governments in the pursuit of freedom, some believe Han and Bikar never intended to ever release their iron grip on Jennifer and that they themselves were the ones who left her feeling like she had no other choice. Of course, there are those who strongly refute that opinion, arguing that Jennifer was 25 years old, she was an adult, with a legal and human right to her own liberty, and that she could have left her family home peacefully at any given moment, leaving Jennifer with absolutely no justification for what she did. I don't know, because that's difficult for me, because if we look at a case of, for example, spousal abuse, it's very easy to say, well, you could have walked out at any time, and actually, you can't, and Whilst it's easy to say that from the outside, when you're in the situation or if you look at it any deeper, no. However, that being said, their parenting technique, whilst my personal opinion is that that borders on child abuse, she was an adult in her 20s, I still don't think it justifies that she got them killed. Like that is, that's just too far. I don't know. I'm kind of in the middle. I think that they were in the Mm. wrong to parent how they did, but in no way, shape or form does that justify the end. Well, I mean, this case has definitely highlighted the issue of tiger parenting. And mm, I bet. There have been loads of studies into the mental and psychological side effects that occur when rigorous, seemingly well-meaning parents just go too far. So um, I'm not saying it's it's like being a prisoner of war or anything like that, but Jennifer might have been struggling with PTSD or um, just felt so pressurised that that was for her the only solution so for me it's a really difficult one I think the the level of premeditation really bothers me it's very disturbing but I I do kind of get that she felt she had no choice but to kill them I really do understand that but I get that like for her that felt like the only possible end to all of this for her I think she I think it got to a point for her where she was either going to genuinely kill herself or she was going to kill her parents and and she chose the latter. Yeah. So yeah. I I just think she was under that much pressure suffering from that much trauma. We don't know if there was physical abuse as well um in her childhood I don't know. That wasn't really talked about at trial so perhaps not because you would have you would have raised that otherwise. Um so I just don't know but I I don't I think you couldn't really have gone with second degree murder or like manslaughter in in our world. Um it had to be murder but maybe it could have been a, a shorter sentence. I don't know. I don't know. No, in my opinion she is a smart intelligent woman who knew what she was doing. Whether or not she felt like it was the last resort for her, personally, doesn't matter. She still made that decision. 
Ooh, but it's such an interesting one because it, it really does like make you think about the, the psychological effects. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, hopefully you guys enjoyed that case. Jennifer's still in prison, uh, living her best prison lifestyle. She's got another 15 years to go. No, actually another 20. Um, do get in touch in all the usual ways. Let us know what you think of this case. Do you think it was right that Jennifer was sentenced to life in prison and told that she must serve a minimum of 25 years? Or do you think that she was the true victim in all of this? You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, also on YouTube and um, through Patreon as well. Please do um, let us know your thoughts. I wonder if anybody has the same thought as me as well, that she was the one who planned and orchestrated this. And is it right that the other four have the Fucking same hell, Beth. sentence Don't ever work as, as a prosecutor. You're cruel, aren't you? I am a little bit. You're on one today. I don't know why. You've got something against on. Jennifer Pan. I do a little bit. <laughs> it, is, it is bad. Yeah, what she did is horrific. To what people say. Yeah, I think this is. Um, obviously, we're not experts at all, but you can no. do your own kind of amateur psychology. And I do feel for her. I do think that she was really struggling. I, I personally yeah. think that she was. She was at the brink of of starting to plan her own um, suicide. So I think that's where I really struggle with this because I do feel very, very sorry for her, and I do think of her as someone in an abusive yeah family home an abusive relationship with those parents i do not whatsoever agree with what she decided to do but yeah it it does make me think well i can understand where she decided this was her only get out even though it wouldn't be my choice i can understand her thinking so yeah really tough yeah thank you very much mark that was a really interesting case to come back after our week break Yeah, it was, wasn't it? So we'll have another case for you next week. Uh, So stay tuned and we will see you then. See you then. Bye.